God, I pray as we approach your word today, would the words of Jesus ring true in our hearts that apart from him, we can do nothing. God, apart from you and your work through your spirit, we cannot understand this text adequately. We cannot be transformed by it. We cannot be doers of it without your help. So God, would you by your spirit enlighten us, give us eyes to see, open up our hearts today that we might be changed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible prescribes as a sickness what the world describes as a cure. I first heard that profound summary by a pastor I was talking to about the destructive elevation of the self that's taken place within our society. I'm sure you've noticed this over the last several week, uh, several decades, uh, but our culture has suggested a cure for many of the problems that we find in our world today. That the cure, from society's standpoint, is to develop the self, that we need greater self-esteem, we need greater self-confidence, self-development, self-assurance. That's the answer to many of our problems that exist in today's world. That the answer is really found within yourself. Just be true to yourself. Look within yourself and unleash that into the world. We see this belief in the, um, the, the understanding that everyone is a special and unique snowflake. We see it in the mantra that you can do whatever you put your mind to. And literally thousands of books and resources and articles all centered around how to develop greater self-esteem. It's obvious that our society believes that the answer to many of our problems is found within the self. The Bible prescribes as a sickness what the world describes as a cure. Now, while we believe that everybody has immense value created in the image of God, I want to suggest to you this morning that one of the most dangerous things that you and I can do is to put our confidence in ourselves rather than in God. For it's going to lead to being puffed up with kind of a prideful self-talk rather than being built up with the truth found in the gospel of Jesus Christ who tells us to take the self and not to put our confidence in it, but to take the self and to put it to death. I think this is the issue that is uh, going on in the church at Corinth. When we look at our passage today in verse six, Paul literally describes them as being puffed up. This is the main, this is the core, this is the, the root issue within the church of Corinth that's created all kinds of symptoms that we've seen so far. They are obsessed with the self. They are looking within themselves for the, for the answer. In fact, Paul will speak of this again in chapter 8. He'll actually accuse this church of being puffed up with knowledge rather than being built up in love. But I want to draw your attention to the way that Paul addresses this issue. You probably picked up on this as I read the passage this morning. This is the rarest form that we're gonna see of Paul in not only 1 Corinthians, but in all of his writings. The way that Paul addresses this is so unique. In fact, one commentary said this. He said, in terms of tone and style, Paul shifts from polite metaphors to blunt commands, accusing rhetorical questions, and even insulting sarcasm. 
right? Paul is, on, is in rare form here because of the issue that he is addressing. Now, let's not misunderstand Paul this morning. Paul is doing this. He's confronting their pride out of a loving care for them, that Paul is motivated by a fatherly care. As verse 15 makes clear, he is the father in the faith to many of them. In fact, verse six states explicitly that he's addressing this topic. It's for their benefits, right? So the the startling and direct rebuke from Paul, it's coming from a pastor's heart. In fact, verse 14 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. All right, so the best way from Paul's vantage point in dealing with pride is to address it. That's the way that he's loving them today. Now, why? Why, why address this and why address it in this way? It's because Paul knew that pride is at the root of nearly every kind of sin, and it is dangerous. In fact, in his wonderful and short book, Pride and Humility, Stuart Scott says this about pride. He says, in essence, prideful people are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them, or for them. That pride is competitive toward others and especially toward God. Pride is the sinful habit to count oneself as more important than others. Pride wants to be on top. Pride is the enemy of humility. Pride is a problem for everyone. The question is not, do I have it, but where is it and how much of it do I have? This is why Paul addresses the Corinthians in such a unique way, because underneath all of their issues, underneath all of the division, underneath all of the quarreling, underneath all of the worldly wisdom, underneath all the judging was pride. In fact, this word that Paul uses in verse six for puffed up literally means to be overinflated, means to be swollen beyond its proper size. It's actually related to uh, the word for bellows, which is a device that's constructed to deliver strong blasts of air. All right, so Paul is, is using this word puffed up to provide a, a provocative description of the condition going on within the Corinthians, that they had become so swollen with the air of pride that was pumped into them that they were overinflated, ready to burst into all kinds of sin. And so this morning, here's, here's my challenge for us, church. I, my challenge is as we overhear Paul confront the Corinthians, as we kind of listen in, could it be that the Spirit of God might use the Word of God today to reveal in us how at times we might actually resemble the Corinthians? And I don't mean to, to kind of accuse us of being a puffed up church today, but what I'm saying is because of indwelling sin, each and every one of us, we are vulnerable to being puffed up with pride in some way. And so today, let's not just overhear the Apostle Paul confront the Corinthians. Let's open our hearts up and ask the Lord, God, search my heart, reveal to me where I might be puffed up with the destructive sin of pride. And so as we get to the end of, of chapter four, 
Paul is nearing the argument that he began in chapter one. He's going to begin a new argument in chapter five. But Paul has been trying to emphasize the need for the centrality of the cross of Christ. This church had become seduced by worldly wisdom. And even though they were most likely genuinely saved, the gospel was no longer functionally the center of their lives that they weren't using the gospel to evaluate themselves, evaluate other people, evaluate the leaders that they were claiming to follow. They were puffed up with pride. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul shows us the grace of God, and he really shows us specifically two effects of the grace of God in this passage. And so this morning, I'm going to point out these two effects. Number one is that grace humbles prideful hearts. Grace humbles prideful hearts. Looking at verse six, Paul explicitly um, um, states his intention to now confront them, but it's for their benefit. They have, Paul said, they've gone beyond what is written. This is most likely referring to some Old Testament passages where many of the writings there give strong warnings against pride, such as Proverbs 16.5. And this pride was being demonstrated, them going beyond what is written, was being demonstrated in their exaggerated evaluation of not only themselves, but also of the human leaders like Apollos and Peter. So how does Paul address this? Well, verse 7, we notice that Paul brilliantly deploys a series of precise, theologically sound, rhetorical questions used to deflate this puffed up church, right? So the remedy at times, certain times in our lives related to pride can be a well-articulated, theologically driven, heart-penetrating question, right? Sometimes that's all that's needed is a well-worded question. I don't know if you've been there before personally. I know I have. I remember uh, back in high school playing basketball, senior year, uh, we were making a run in the playoffs in the tournament, We just won a game that put us in kind of the the final eight teams in our division in Ohio, kind of in the great eight, one game away from making it to the final four playing at Ohio State at the Schottenstein Center. And I remember being interviewed after that game um, and the reporter was asking me, Chris, great game. Like, how do you feel about, about your team out there? And, and I remember saying something like, you know, we, we played well, we worked hard as a team. And, you know, this is kind of a dream come true. One game away from making it to the final four, we're going to go out there and we're going to beat South Webster next week. Now, South Webster was the team that we were playing next. They were number one seed. They were unbelievable. They had two guys that went on to play division one college. And I, in this interview, quite arrogantly said, we're going to go out there and beat them. So the reporter then asked me a follow-up question. It was a well-worded question that exposed my pride, exposed my arrogance. The reporter said, well, how do you plan to do that? And I remember just mumbling and kind of stumbling over my words. Like, I I don't even know. Like, I mean, we'll, we'll work hard. We'll play our style of game, you know, whatever the you know, classic cliche athlete reporter type of answer. But I remember being stopped in my tracks there over a well-worded question that just revealed my pride and my overconfidence. When you look at verse seven, that is exactly what Paul is trying to do. He has these three specific well-worded questions used to expose their pride. But keep in mind today that these questions are an act of God's 
grace. That these questions are gifts, not just to the Corinthians, but these questions are gifts to us today because they are an act of God's means to protecting us from being a puffed up church. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice in verse seven, the first question Paul asked them, for who sees anything different in you? Paul's basically asking, who makes you different from anyone else? All right, maybe the blunt translation here from Paul is, who in the world do you think that you are anyway? Right? Paul's asking them, what kind of, of self-delusion is it that allows you to put yourself in a position to not only judge others, but to consider yourself better, more superior than others? In fact, the literal translation in the Greek here could be, who concedes you any superiority? Right? So the Corinthians here, they have this this proud self-assessment. They were proud of their spirituality. They were proud of their spiritual gifts. They were proud of the growth that was happening within this church. They were proud of identifying with specific leaders with their I belong slogans. And all of those things were revealing the serious sin of pride. Because here's the reality. Even though this church at Corinth had incredible spiritual gifts and that they were distinguishable from other believers, other churches. Everything distinguishable about them is attributed to the grace of God and God alone. All right, Paul's trying, he's tried to make this clear. Chapter two, verse 10, it was God who revealed the grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not them going and searching for it. Chapter three, verse six, it was God who gave the growth that was happening within this church. So Paul asked the question, basically, who made them any different than others? The answer is obvious. It was God himself. But from the Corinthian standpoint, that wasn't obvious. They were being blinded by pride. And so this question here in particular is used to to kind of humble them. But also I think this question is used to address a connected issue of pride, which is the danger of presuming upon God's grace. The danger of of presumption, of presuming upon God's grace is clear evidence of deep-seated pride within the heart. Just a side note today, sometimes we think about our sin in our own hearts as, as kind of neatly organized and separated. I got this sin here, this sin over there, and they're, they're kind of separated. But oftentimes, sin within our hearts, it's way more messy than that. Oftentimes, they are connected. They're working together. They can't keep their hands to themselves. And we see that even here with pride being closely associated with this this sin of presuming upon God's grace. Presumption, the the cousin of selfish entitlement, it assumes God will bless. It assumes that God will pour out his grace on me, not because he is so generous, but because I'm so great. It's because of what I have done that God will automatically bless me. And it not only assumes, but it also takes God's grace for granted. This, this I think, is the real danger here. When when you come to this place, when you become bored of the scandal 
of grace. When it's just another thing going on in the world and in your life, and it's not the thing that's driving your life, that God has poured out his grace upon you. It's thinking, well, I I look like a Christian. I, I go to church like a Christian. I speak Christianese language. Therefore, God should bless me. Therefore, God should pour out his grace upon me. It's presuming upon him. Now, I think that's the issue here in Corinth. The Corinthians, they're looking at their spiritual gifts, their spirituality, the growth happening in the church, and they're thinking because of these things, of course, God will pour out his grace upon us. That's why I think this question must have leveled them. Who sees anything different in you? Look, church, beware of the danger of presuming upon God's grace when your heart is no longer in awe of what he's done in your life. So that's the first question, but Paul continues. Question number two in verse seven, if you notice here, is what do you have that you did not receive? Now, the answer here is obvious. Of course, they have received everything from God, but again, they're blinded by pride. So in their minds, they're thinking, well, of course, I haven't received anything. I've actually earned everything that I have. I've worked for all of these, th- these things. And if the first question ad- addresses the issue of presumption, I think this question addresses the issue of ungratefulness. The Corinthians were ungrateful about the grace that God poured out upon them to save them from their sins but they're also ungrateful for God's immense generosity in giving them spiritual gifts and all the blessings going on in their lives. So Paul asked them, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, church, the question sounds so basic. Don't skip over this. Don't move on in your mind, in your heart. This question is deeply profound And understanding the answer to this question can have a life-transforming effect upon your life. In fact, Gordon Fee, who's written the best commentary in 1 Corinthians, says this about this question. He says, this question is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty where in the presence of the eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything that one has is a gift. All is of grace. Nothing is deserved, nothing earned. Church, Let me challenge you right now in this moment, let's respond to the invitation that this question presents. Let's have one of those rare, unguarded, honest moments right now in the presence of the eternal God. Let's realize and acknowledge that everything we have, absolutely everything we have is a gift from the hand of our generous, gracious God. That nothing we have is based on something that we've earned, on something that we've worked for. The only thing we deserve from God is wrath. And yet God has poured out his grace upon us. Think about, just for a moment, think about the generosity of God upon your life, first and foremost of salvation. Think about 
the grace that God demonstrated in sending his own son to die in your place on the cross so that if you believe in him, if you trust in him, you receive salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. That is grace. That is done. You receive that by faith, not because you've worked for it, not because you've earned it, not because you provide something on God's team that he desperately needs. No, it's all because of grace. But he extends it. His generosity goes beyond salvation. Take this question and apply it to every area of your life. What do you have that you did not receive? Think about your relationships. That's a gift from God. Think about your money, your job, your your car, your house, your clothes, your personality, your work ethic, your intellect. Every breath that you breathe is a gift from the generous hand of God. It is all grace. And look, the, the problem, and I think the dangerous reality of pride and ungratefulness is this destructive little thought that creeps into our minds and in our hearts that says, yeah, but not everything is a gift from God. Like I've, I've done something to earn what I have. I've done something to, to work for this. Look, look, my work ethic, like I've, I've made good decisions. And it, no, God's given you that work ethic. <laughs> God's given you that intellect. God's given you those accomplishments and those opportunities because he is the sovereign, generous God. And this question given by Paul here pierces right through that and says, you own nothing. It all belongs to God. And God in his grace has demonstrated his generosity by the things that are in your life. I came across a quote this week from Charles Spurgeon, and, uh, and this leveled me. <laughs> I, I, had to, I read this, and I just had to sit there and just praise God for his grace. And I just want to read this to you because I think it's so helpful. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, said this about this verse. He said, O oh, believer, learn to reject pride, seeing that you have no ground for it. Whatever you are, you have nothing to make you proud. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God, and you should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. Consider your origin. Look back to what you were. Consider what you would have been but for divine grace. Look upon yourself as you are now. Does not your conscience reproach you? Do not your thousand wanderings stand before you and tell you that you are unworthy to be called his son or daughter? And if he has made you anything, are you not taught thereby that it is grace that has made you to differ? Great believer, you would have been a great sinner if God had not made you to differ. Oh, you who are valiant for truth, you would have been as valiant for error if grace had not laid hold upon you. Oh, I beseech you, my dear friend, every time you see a hardened sinner, just say within yourself, there is the picture of what I should have been, what I must have been, if all subduing, all conquering love had not melted and sanctified my heart. 
Therefore, do not be proud, though you have influenced a wide domain of grace. For once you did not have a single thing to call your own, except your sin and misery. O strange infatuation that you who has borrowed everything should think of exalting yourself a poor, dependent beneficiary upon the bounty of your Savior, one who has a life that dies without fresh streams of life from Jesus and yet is proud. Man, I've read that and I was like, wow. Just, just in awe of his grace and his generosity. Man, the line that got me was, was this one, great believer, you would have been a great sinner if God had not made you to differ. Man, just to think about where you would be if it wasn't for the grace of God. I know where I would be. I would be a man filled with great sin and shame. I'd be a man who's on an impossible quest trying to earn God's favor, earn God's love, and yet pushing myself deeper and deeper into despair. Look, church, it's all grace. Everything is grace. And when you understand that in a way, that captivates not only your head, but it captivates your heart. It changes you forever. It changes the way you think about your life. It changes the way that you think about the world, about other people, about suffering. It's all grace. Grace humbles us. It deflates being puffed up with pride. Well, this takes us to the third question here. Verse seven, Paul then asks, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, so if the answer to question two is grace, then to boast is further evidence of pride, that one cannot boast in being a worthy recipient of grace and brag about it. Look, I just want to remind us this morning, these, these questions are gifts from the Lord. I, I want to challenge you this week to take these questions with you into this coming week. Take them and rehearse them review them, reflect upon them, apply them because they are God's means for protecting you from being puffed up with pride. Well, this takes us to the second effect of God's grace that I see in this passage. Number two is that God's grace not only humbles prideful hearts, but God's grace strengthens weak hearts. If you look at verse eight, Paul now moves from using these powerful rhetorical questions in verse seven to now verse eight, a series of antithesis between them and himself with the intended outcome to be humility. These first three sentences of verse eight, Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. He again uses biting irony and attacks their view of themselves, of their self-evaluation is that they have everything that they need. That's why Paul calls them already, you are kings. You have all that you need in your mind. And really their, their condition can be summed up with one word, that word already. They have already all that they need. Now, Paul, again, and we looked at this uh, in the introduction of this letter, Paul, one of the big issues that he's addressing is their eschatology, their view of the end times, what happens 
after we die. It's something that we'll get to in coming weeks. But here, he's addressing the already but not yet tension that we live in in this world. We're already, we are rich heirs of Christ, but not yet fully. But for the Corinthians here, they were emphasizing the already aspects of the eschatology that already they think that they have all that they want, that they are these rich heirs in Christ right now. And this has impacted their view of the Christian life. See, Paul, what he does here in verses 9 through 13, he's not just giving these random descriptions of his life. Paul is redefining what true mature spirituality is all about. And what he does here is he describes a life of weakness before the Corinthians. Notice verse nine, he says that we were a spectacle to the world, like men sentenced to death. Verse 10, we were fools for Christ. We were weak. We were dishonored. Verse 11, hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, no home to sleep in, reviled, persecuted, slandered, scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He is describing a life of weakness. Why? Because mature spirituality is not about self-sufficiency, so you do not need God, but true mature spirituality is weakness and dependency upon God so that he can strengthen you with his own grace. And this description by Paul, ironically, is something that the Corinthians despised. And yet the very things they despised about Paul were the very things they were to aspire toward. And Paul is describing this life of weakness. And we looked at this last week, kind of the upside down reality within God's kingdom, that this life of weakness actually allows Paul to be made strong by God's power and God's grace. If you notice in verse 12 here, Paul says, even though we were weak when reviled, we were able to bless. When persecuted, Paul was able to endure. When slandered, Paul was able to entreat. How? It's because of God's grace. Verse 9, it was God who orchestrated all of this. It's God's grace that strengthens weak hearts to be able to respond and live in this way. I should you notice where Paul says elsewhere, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect, not in strength, but in weakness. James 4, 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Grace strengthens weak hearts. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning, I want to answer the question, how does grace strengthen us? Right? Those verses are powerful. Those verses are great. But practically, what does grace do to strengthen weak hearts? Let me give you a few ways. Number one, then grace strengthens us by giving us a motivation out of joy, not obligation. 
right? We, we serve God. We live our lives in obedience to God, not being motivated to earn his favor or his acceptance or love because we already have it in full in Jesus because of the grace that he's given us in Christ. And so now we're motivated out of this thanksgiving because of all that Jesus has done. This infuses in our hearts a gospel-empowered joy, knowing that our sins are forgiven, our, our home in heaven is secure, our acceptance before God is unchanging. So we pursue God, we work out our relationship with the Lord, not being motivated out of a sense of duty, but out of delight, not obligation, but joy because of grace. Another way that grace strengthens us is, I think grace makes us grateful people, right? Now this goes back to verse seven, but because I don't own anything, it all belongs to God, that means everything that I have is a gift, right? I don't deserve anything but wrath. And yet God has poured out his grace upon me. He's made me a steward, not an owner of things. It's all grace. And with that mindset, grace produces gratitude. Like you're thankful, you're grateful. And gratitude guards our hearts against entitlement, against presuming upon God's grace and blessing, and it protects us from being prideful. Grace makes us grateful. And then thirdly, I think another way that grace strengthens us is it gives us the right perspective. God's grace doesn't always change our circumstances. I know it's a hard truth, but it doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but God's grace changes our hearts. That God is so much more concerned about growing the inner person, not changing the external situation in your life. And I think being reminded of that, that that's God's grace working out in our lives, changes our perspective and our expectations towards hardship, towards those things that make us weak. We start to view those things as helpful tools in the hands of God that alongside grace strengthens us and grows us. Look, if, if dependency upon God is the goal, which it is, then weakness is actually an advantage. Right? When you come to the end of yourself, you turn to someone who is much stronger than you, who is God. And so neediness, weakness, dependency becomes the pathway to strength. And I, I want to close just with this question this morning. Could it be that God has allowed circumstances in your life right now in this season for you to feel completely overwhelmed, inadequate, to, to come to the end of the rope, so to speak, for you to stop living on your own? for you to stop living on your own strength, to, to stop being puffed up with pride and instead embrace the pathway of weakness and dependency upon God and turn to the bottomless well of God's grace. Well, church, I hope that we see God working in our midst, not just in the good things of our lives, but the hard things in our lives, that that is also an act of God's grace because grace humbles prideful hearts and strengthens weak hearts. 
Let us continue to strive to be a people of grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for your generosity. God, it is amazing to stop and to think about the ways that you have lavished grace upon us. God, help us to never get over that. Help us, Lord, to be people who are marked by your generosity in a way that changes how we talk, how we think, and how we live. God, I thank you for this passage. Thank you for these hard questions that are a gift from you. Lord, I pray that we'd be dependent people upon you and your strength. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.